Welcome to the Venari podcast and the next episode in our Chief Commercial Officer series. My name is Joe Knight and I lead the commercial function within the life sciences and healthcare practice at Venari Partners. I'm joined today by Kirsten Dietrich, who was recently Chief Commercial Officer at Endpoint Health. Kirsten's career takes in BMS, Amgen and Takeda, where she held a variety of commercial roles at the US, European and global levels. Kirsten is sought after by biotechs preparing for commercialization, and she also has board member experience at Arexo. In the podcast today, we're talking EU versus US commercialization, becoming a CCO, and effectively executing commercial strategy. Hi, Kirsten. Welcome to the Renari podcast. Thanks, Joe. It's a delight to be here with you today. Great to have you with us. So, Kirsten, let's start with you. Tell us a bit about your career to date. So I have spent 30 years launching and leading multi-billion dollar blockbusters that you might or might not have heard of, um, like Antivio, Enbrel, Plavix, Prolia. I did that for companies like Amgen, BMS, and Takeda. Um, I've also had a great startup experience. I worked um, for a couple of years as chief commercial officer at a targeted therapeutics organization based in Palo Alto. Um, and, you know, my career has taken me all over the world. I started in New Jersey. I went to Southern California. Then I went to Zurich, Switzerland, Vienna, um, Austria. And now I'm speaking to you from Vermont in the United States. So you were telling us there about the uh, kind of bigger end of the career in the pharma and large biotech space. You spent 13 years at BMS, nine at Amgen, eight at Takeda. How does the larger company mindset impact your thinking as a CCO in a smaller biotech? You know, it's so interesting having um, the experience of large pharma and then, you know, bookending it with startups. You know, the truth is, yes, there's a lot of differences between them, but actually there's also a lot of similarities. So, you know, one big difference is large biopharmas, obviously, they leverage their infrastructure, their established ways of working, you know, and startups are kind of all about creating those ways of working, you know, working in a completely new and exciting and different ways. And obviously that's a huge difference. But interestingly, I would posit that this is where the differences end and the similarities begin. Because although big pharma um, and, you know, sort of looks to the outside world like, wow, limitless resources, they have everything they need. Actually, the opposite is true. There is constantly a competition for scarce resources at big pharma and a real need for creativity and innovation, which of course sounds an awful lot like a startup, doesn't it? Yeah, so, yeah, you know, as, as CCO of a small biotech, um, you know, what I do is I apply a lot of the infrastructure thinking. So, for example, guiding discovery and development teams to use, you know, helpful tools like a target product profile, landscape assessments, long-term regulatory planning, you know, solid forecasting techniques. But the job of a CCO and a startup is to apply those frameworks in ways that fit the culture, the mindset, and the approach of a startup so that you effectively can, you know, continue to push valuation, continue to push the development of a new drug um, through the pipeline so that patients in the end benefit. I work with aspiring executives from Big Pharma pretty regularly and who are thinking about becoming chief commercial officers. Do you have any advice for those kind of people who are thinking about making that transition from uh, big pharma VP roles into small biotech as a chief commercial officer? Yeah, look, I have to tell you, you know, in my 30 plus year career, being CCO was one of the most incredible roles I ever had. Um, you know, I think it's probably one of the best roles in the entire sector, quite frankly. Um, you know, you have a mission. Your mission is to bridge the gap between the scientists who often don't have, you know, deep experience with the complexities of late stage drug development and commercialization and the marketplace where probably you've played, you know, quite seriously and, and um, you know, quite 
um, successfully over time. But the career step is a big one. You can expect to be, for example, the face of credibility for your new organization. Um, if you're CCO, you've got to be willing to leverage your professional network of former colleagues, key opinion leaders, maybe industry experts on behalf of your new employer. And P.S., that employer might be a scrappy startup that has limited understanding of some of the expectations and the norms with these kinds of advisors. You're probably going to be a talent magnet for the company as it scales. You'll be a critical member of the C-suite team that is not only crafting, but adapting and growing the strategic plan. They're raising capital. They're finding collaborations and partnerships with larger organizations. You've got to be able to do all of this and be ready for it without the benefit of the structure, the framework, and the network of experienced colleagues that relied on in Big Pharma. You know, in Big Pharma, we're used to calling up a pal, you know, going next door to somebody's office and saying, hey, you know, can you give me a, a hint on this? You don't have that when you're at a startup. And, and P.S., you got to do this all while keeping an eye on the financial runway of the company. You have to make sure that you're executing in a way that ensures that every single dollar that you are spending is stretched to its absolute limit. And that is a little different than, you know, working at a big pharma. It's a high wire act. It's incredibly fun. It's really rewarding to help bring new science to life in a way that helps patients. And in terms of landing that kind of role, I would say that there's a couple of keys. One, possess a willingness to network incessantly, you know, demonstrate genuine willingness to get out of your comfort zone and thrive in non-familiar settings. And, and what better non-familiar setting than going to a, a coffee house or an evening networking event all by yourself and just throwing yourself in there. Using networking platforms, I use tons of different networking platforms and opportunities, virtual and in-person as a way of meeting interesting people. And um, I, I think one of the things to recognize is a startup is going to be skeptical that you're going to fit into their culture. So figuring out how to assure them that you're flexible, that you're open, that you're collaborative, and that you're willing to learn is just as important as demonstrating you're an expert at commercialization, marketing, and sales. And by the way, I do think that having someone on your side, like an advisor, a career advisor, a recruiter, someone who's experienced in this field is so helpful because they'll give you great guidance and great advice. So you've launched products multiple times throughout your career. How do you go about building that team? You talked about talent acquisition in the previous answer. And most importantly, I think, when is the right time to bring that commercial talent to a small, mid-sized biotech? You know, this is probably the toughest question that you're going to face as a CCO, right? So as an example, one of my previous companies brought me in right as they were inking their first in licensing deal. And I was able to, you know, advise them on that and then leverage my career network to identify the drug development pros, the regulatory CMC talks, and all of the critical experts that enabled us to submit our pre-IND to the FDA on that lead asset. So I suppose the best time to get that CCO on board is as soon as possible, quite frankly. Um, deciding when to bring on the next level of commercial talent, as your, your point out, is tricky. I'd probably say that the most important next hire is um, a health economics and outcomes research person, a, a reimbursement expert. If you can get those talents in the same person, bravo, you've stretched your dollar. Um, you know, it might be a luxury to hire that person around phase one, but I have to say I strongly advise considering that timing because everything that you start with is what you launch with. And what you launch with is what your reimbursement people are going to need to deal with. So having that 
sort of um, person early on is really key. I would also consider bringing in a sharp marketing strategy person around this time. Someone who's partnered closely with drug developers previously, they've brought new assets to market and who really feels comfortable bridging the, the gap between a large pharma setting and a startup setting. Um, I think there's another area that's begun to interest me lately, which is that of fractional employment. I have found that there are so many amazingly talented people out there who love the idea of fitting together a few career opportunities simultaneously, kind of like a consultant, but but not quite, um, you know, rather than committing full time to a, a new startup. And by the way, this is great for a startup because it's incredibly affordable and it's a way to squeeze value out of every single dollar. Um, and then in terms of, you know, a, attracting these pros to a startup, I tap my network. There are so many terrifically talented commercial people out there who are ready for a real pivot in their career. And they're excited by that opportunity and they're eager to experience the energy, the um, delight of a startup. Um, and again, working with someone, you know, a recruiter or someone who is an objective third, third party can really be helpful. You spent time in both the US and European market on the commercial side of Biopharma. How did your strategies differ between Europe and the US and which of those lessons that you learned are transferable? Oh my gosh, that's that's such a giant question. I mean, I was very, very lucky. I got to spend eight years working overseas um, in two completely different jobs. One was a global job and one was a local general manager job. You know, I have to tell you, I think the biggest similarity is patience. Patients are waiting. And the other similarity, but also huge difference is reimbursement, health economics, outcomes research. We could have a whole separate podcast on, on that Maybe we actually, you know, kick that one. We have a deeper uh, conversation um, at a later date this year. What do you think, Joe? That sounds good. Let's uh, let's come back to that another time. So finally, Kissin, I'd like to ask you to look towards the future. What changes and developments do you think we might see in commercialization strategy from both big pharma and biotech um, in the coming years? You know, I, I I was just at the bio um, annual conference in Boston a couple of weeks ago, and I was at J.P. Morgan in January. And you can feel the electricity and the excitement in the air from both big pharmas and these startups who are in attendance. You know, I, I don't know the actual numbers of people that show up. Someone I've heard ranges from 20,000 to 40,000 people descend on that meeting. And why? Well, large farmers are on the hunt for novel therapeutics. You know, they need these therapeutics to um, continue to grow their pipeline and to offer a difference in the lives of patients who are living with grievous illnesses. Unfortunately, finding those assets is super hard. Um, and as I mentioned at the start of our discussion, Big Pharma, they have limited resources. They cannot be everywhere, you know, despite what I think many people outside of that um, environment might think. So I think there's going to continue to be this need to bring pharma and startups together, but I believe it might be happening in a, in a new way. So for example, one of um, the um, things that I'm working on right now um, is a new venture that we're calling Silentia. And Silentia identifies startups in locations that are less traditionally targeted by big pharma. So big pharma tends to spend all of their time and energy in Boston and San Francisco because you know, that's where the density of science is happening. Um, however, there's great science happening in places like Minnesota or New Hampshire or Illinois. And what we do at Salencia is we run them through a six-week program. We use case studies that are taught by global experts who have actually done this work. Um, and these experts help guide these startups to the next level. 
the um, mentors or these experts um, uh, work with these startups for six weeks. They coach them to build out really thorough drug development and commercialization plans for their lead assets. And these are fully crafted plans. These are ready for prime time. These are not just pitch decks. These plans are the substrate for the pitch decks that will eventually see their way to venture capitalists and to big pharma, et cetera. The program's sponsored by large pharmas who know they can't cover every single geography and that they, you know, this is a way for them to um, get access to the great science and innovation that's happening everywhere. Um, but they just simply don't have the resources to reach out in every single, you know, university or PhD who's starting a small um, company. And at the end of the program, the sponsors um, who are big pharma and the startups who um, have built these plans um, and have had them tested by experts meet for a demo day where they meet, they review the asset plans and potentially the startup and the pharma identify ways of you know, collaborating, partnering. It's a win-win for everyone involved. And that's something I think is really new and very exciting in this space. Sounds really interesting. And are you interested in hearing from companies who are in that kind of uh, not hot area at the moment in terms of geography? Definitely. We would love to hear from um, startups that are based in areas that traditionally it's harder for them to maybe get the attention. We're also thrilled and excited to hear from big pharmas that are excited about this approach to enhancing their pipelines and really bringing in new creativity, new science. I mean, let's face it, COVID changed the world, right? People are now living where they work and they're choosing to live and work kind of follows them. And so if we're only focusing in two parts of the country, and by the way, this has global applications eventually, right? Um, but here, if we start in the U.S., for example, if we're only focusing in two cities, think about how much innovation Big Farm is actually missing out on. And that's something that we're going to bring to bear for um, both large farm and pharma and the startups. And I'm really excited about it. Great. It sounds really exciting. Well, Kissin, thanks so much for joining the Venari podcast. Great to have you as a guest. A pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Joe.